0: Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian Mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or well, what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold, And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance, not in the Crawl Space studios in Wormtown, but being joined remotely through the magic
1: of the internet. What's up, Lance? Yeah, the internet, this new thing, the internet, which is really getting us by um, during these uh, interesting times that we live in. Uh, I'm doing well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing good. Uh, I am
0: also thankful for the internet and uh, and the great people uh, still working out there. And uh, obviously, we all know what uh, state the world is at. We don't have to get into it too much. Um, but uh, Lance, this interview is really something. It's uh, with a fellow named Sean Cribben and his friend named Billy Greer. They're working on a documentary. The documentary is called Was I Next? The Sean Cribben Story and Billy Greer is producing this documentary about Sean's encounter with a serial killer, the fellow named Bruce
1: MacArthur from Toronto, Canada. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, Bruce MacArthur was Canada's serial killer from 2010 to 2017, and he preyed primarily on the gay community uh, in Toronto's gay village and uh, Cabbage Town, which is is a section of Toronto, sort of an alternative section of Toronto. And Sean Cribbin was one of two that survived one of his attacks, which his story is mind-blowing on so many levels from... How he uh, first met Bruce MacArthur, the relationship that they had. It was primarily an online relationship. The first day that they met, the crazy first thing that he he said to Bruce when he met him, and and the attack itself and how he survived it, right down to like the survivor's guilt that he had, which is sort of heart-wrenching to hear. It
0: really is, and it's compelling to hear what what someone is going through, someone in uh, the situation that Sean is uh, someone who uh, really should have been killed by Bruce MacArthur, but Bruce's roommate came home and sort of foiled his plan, and you'll hear why Sean knows that he would have been next um, in the interview. He's got some um, really disturbing details about photographs uh, about himself being posed. So, uh, yeah, it's heart-wrenching. And terrifying to hear how Bruce MacArthur groomed Sean for years um, by just being a friend online. And
1: he was unassuming. And we made the connection through uh, Mr. Billy Greer, who has his production company. Uh, this is the first time that Billy has produced a documentary. And their backstory is pretty interesting as well, where Sean had helped Billy out during some hard times and it's come full circle in a sense where Billy is able to do this for Sean now and tell his story. Yeah, it's a really interesting connection, and I'm really
0: excited to see the movie. Unfortunately, they're a little bit held up by the coronavirus right now, but I'm sure we will get to see it at some point soon.
1: And you can check out uh, the information on Billy's production company and the status of the documentary at the website I cogitate. Dot C-A, that's I-C-O-G-I-T-A-T-E dot C-A. Okay, enjoy the episode.
0: Thanks for listening. Give us five stars. Welcome to Crawl Space. We are being joined now by two very special guests. We have Billy Greer and we have Sean Cribben. How are you, fellas?
2: Hi, right, good. Thanks for having us on.
3: Hi guys. How you doing?
1: Thanks for coming on. Uh hope you guys are, you know, staying healthy during this pandemic. And uh it's really fascinating uh story that you have. And I, I feel like we're pretty fortunate to be able to speak with you about this, Sean. Um, but I want uh Billy to sort of introduce uh this, the the topic here because um You're the one that originally reached out about, uh, you know, Sean's story, and and we got the ball rolling through you. So if you want to take a couple minutes, Billy, and just describe uh, yourself and and how you got involved in Sean's story and and who Sean Cribben is.
3: It started about 23 years ago. I had met Sean. I was working uh, at a nightclub downtown as a bartender, and a friend of mine was Sean's partner at the time. And I had known him from my hometown, so we had kind of known each other in the scene for a while. And um, fast forward maybe a year or two, I was running some after-hours booze cans in the city and it was a late night affair. Everything kind of went south for a hot minute and I found myself on the streets for a while. I was um, almost, I lost everything and basically the couch I ended up on and the solarium I ended up in was Sean's and that was kind of life-altering for me. He was working, holding down a job, teaching, you know, keeping it going was a good example of um, how I could get it back on track. He didn't really know that at the time. Um, You know, when I saw the interviews in the last couple of years where he had been the survivor of the uh, MacArthur's encounter, um, it didn't register. You know, I had lived with Sean for about eight months to a year in that 97, era 98, um, but it didn't register then. I was watching this and I was so consumed with the story. We all were here. It was on our news. We were inundated. I just really hadn't listened, and one day my modem went out, and I was forced to just listen to the TV. I was uh, looking out the window, waiting for my modem to come back up, and I heard the voice, and it was Sean's voice. I stepped back from the TV, and then it all hit me. I realized he was the one that was in the interviews all along, and it took me about eight days to get a hold of him because all of his social media was pretty much on lockdown. And um, when I got through, it was a pretty emotional conversation, and I had just said, you know, basically, one part in your interview that I had seen was you had said you wish the world knew you before you became this headline. And I thought, wow, I knew you before and what a good guy and what a great story to tell. So I begged, borrowed and stole every opportunity I could and jumped through a few hoops to get a chance to tell his story because he was already being pursued. And um, when we met and I met with his partner, who is also now our musical director, and um, you know, the whole team just kind of came together once Sean said, "Billy, about the gig. And uh, I pitched the treatment, showed him my angle on the story and how I thought we could kind of put the humanity back into this gruesome picture. And um, we assembled a team, a couple from the Sioux, Tammy Rydell, and as uh, our executive producer, Craig Huckerby is our director. We have uh, Steve Sauter as our musical director, that's Sean's partner, and James Nelson is our production assistant, myself. And there was our team and we hit the ground running last July 26th. There's our story.
0: Wow. Okay, so the movie's coming together.
1: And the, the movie that you speak of is uh, the Sean Cribbin story. And Sean Cribbin was one of the few survivors, I think there were only two survivors, of the notorious Toronto serial killer Bruce MacArthur. And Bruce MacArthur was... Uh, active during 2010 to 2017 he targeted primarily gay men that's correct right was it was it exclusively gay men yeah,
2: yeah. yes um or bisexual okay some oh i
1: see and yeah. he has a uh, official uh victim count of eight and he was just apprehended uh like a year and a half ago or something, right? In January of 2018. So this is this is very recent. And yep. he is currently in prison. And Sean, you survived. You were one of two people who survived him.
2: Yeah. And at the time when I found out was when I got called into the police office. And um, it was at that time he was only charged with the first two murders because they had not found the remains yet. And so they found some uh, blood and semen in his vehicle, which the, pl- the police had been following him. So when he tried to get rid of the vehicle, he uh, they were there to then take it into for evidence. Once I realized the whole thing, because I was just learning of it that day after his arrest, I felt a lot of pressure coming out of there because it was just my testimony and um, the, the blood and the semen. There was no bodies. So that was um. At, just before I left the police station, the detective said to me, you have a piece of information for this case that no one else has because the other people who have this information are dead. And I was like, holy fuck. Yeah. <laughs> that was just like... Uh, Okay. I think I got into the Uber I had called and I think I very excitedly started rambling on about how I just survived a serial killer because that was all new information. I had no clue up until that day.
1: That's, in- yeah, that's incredible.
2: Yeah.
0: I, I have to imagine you're still processing that. I guess if you can take us through, um, what happened.
2: So the, the morning, um, I got up and uh, we tried to hook up on May first. I laid down about noon for a nap, and um, I missed the pickup time at at three o'clock in the afternoon. And that was probably the first time my life was safe because if I had gone that time, his roommate would not have come home early, and I, things would have been go, gone the way they did. But even then, there were signs of premeditation because. Uh, it didn't register any flags because you're not thinking, oh, this is a serial killer. He was parked like about three, three three and a half blocks from my my um, where my place is to pick you up. And um, there is a, a drive where you can pull in, but there's also a camera that's pointed directly at whoever pulls into that spot. Um, he was behind a, an apartment building on a side street. That is, doesn't have a lot of foot traffic to pick me up the first time. So that was kind of, that was all hindsight information. Um, so then on July 26th, this time, bound and determined not to be late, I was running a little late. And uh, I, I said, uh, I'm, but this time I was texting and saying, okay, I'm on my way. I'm just uh, grabbing this and then coming down. So when I got into his truck, the very first phrase that I brought up was, so there's a serial killer in the neighborhood. And I start to say uh, things like, I wonder who it is. Because I had my own theories. I had been throwing around that it was maybe an Uber driver or something because they would know the gay neighborhood and they would just pick up the calls from there. But um I was wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, the, I still, to this day, I've been able to ask the question of him but I still haven't received the answers yet, so uh, I'm, I'm still waiting on that. Because the detective uh, later, after his, uh, he pled guilty, um, allowed me to submit some questions to MacArthur personally.
1: So you uh, you were connecting with MacArthur. Uh, how did it, how did you um, get his initial uh, contact information? Where did that uh, where did that connection first come from?
2: Okay, so um, he had been. Sp- speaking to me kind of casually for about um three three years maybe a little bit longer on three different apps gay men's apps and uh there was barefoot Woman one <laughs> there was recon and there was uh what was the other one growler so between those three like and they were nothing serious or or even that overly flirtatious it was just like how are you doing um, he became like a casual kind of online cyber per- personality for me. And then this one time um, we said we should, we should meet. And it didn't seem like I was meeting um, a stranger because he kind of, uh, in a way he kind of groomed me by becoming this sort of like very casual person in my periphery. So it didn't seem like, okay, even though that was the first day I, I met him face to face was the day that he tried to kill me
1: you were you were talking with him uh, messaging him for three years and you you think that that might have been the a way that he would uh groom his victims and and probably was grooming you uh, was there any and I know you said it, it, it was pretty normal as far as the conversations, but was there any sort looking back on it any sort of red flag that that might that you that you can look at now and say oh yeah that that was a little off
2: there's he's he's very manipulative and he's very smart i've learned that because of um i was of what i knew from behind the scenes of the case was it was evolving and i wouldn't all all the things he's he's not spoken publicly so i ha- i just have to assume that every move he did was thought out and with intent to maybe groom his, his next set of victims and and uh or even possible victims
3: didn't you ask him about something and he went right into his landscape did you tell me that?
2: oh that was after i said about the serial killer and then he changed yeah. the topic to um to his work and then uh he also brought up on the way home about being a Santa, which now it seems creepy but at the time it was uh Oh, it was, uh, the reason I brought it up in the initial interview was because it made him more trusting. Like, who doesn't trust Santa Claus? You're brought up trusting Santa Claus. So I thought, and then I thought, oh, that's sweet. He does community service. Oh, my
0: God. He was a mall Santa Claus. And, um, so when you asked him about the serial killer, he just immediately changed the subject.
2: We hadn't pulled away from the curb when I brought up the serial killer. And then it was by the time it's a very short ride to the corner. And by the time we turned the corner, he was, he shut that topic down. It, um it did come up one other time. I made a comment. I don't know why, but that was later at his place. We'll get to that leading
1: up to uh meeting him you you uh knew about a serial killer that was stalking the gay community uh how How long had you known about the serial killer, and what was that like you know in that community? Was there a lot of talk or was it just um did people whisper about it or or you no or was, it was, was there a lot it of, was uh...
2: like the talk everyone um especially after Andrew went missing. Um, because he was very well known, and then um, it was, and all of his uh, his disappearance was very unlike him. So, because he had a cat, and he was very um, there's no way he would leave his cat with for days without food. Like, um, so there were little things that were so out of character. They they knew uh, the community pretty well. Knew something had gone awry um the the victims prior to to um to andrew there there were two that weren't reported, and then there was also um they didn't have a lot of ties to the community, and that was on purpose like again he was very smart and manipulative in picking his victims yeah. so um yeah like uh, it was hard for the police to do do a job with um when there was no evidence. There was nothing,
3: right? Those ones were it's hard to join those dots for sure.
2: Yeah, because they were yeah. reported later than um, Andrews um, was helpful. Basically, because within, I uh, twenty four hours or whatever the minimum or the maximum, the time they have to wait so the person's considered missing. Um, he was he was reported missing. And I remember it was going around Facebook. Have you seen Andrew? He's he didn't show up.
3: Yeah, we saw the posters on Jerk Street too. Yeah, Sean, it was, he, he raised the visibility faster than all the other ones.
2: And you're
1: talking you're talking about Andrew Kinsman, who disappeared from the Cabbage Town section of Toronto, uh, June twenty sixth, twenty seventeen. That's a, that's the Andrew that you're speaking of.
2: Uh, yes. And, um, it, there's, uh, if you look at them, it was almost like he was stepping up his game because Selim Aston uh, disappeared in April. Then there was the, um, my arranged uh, meeting May 1st, which I, I failed to appear. Um, and then Andrew went in June and then I went in July and this time I did go. So that's, um, he never had that month after month.
1: Do you think that he was losing control?
2: Um, I I I believe so. It's my opinion that either he wanted to get caught at this point yeah. or he was just um making some big mistakes. because um Andrew was uh, and myself are high profile um gays, I guess. Um we have lots of ties to the community. So uh we like I would have been noticed not being home uh, at six o'clock in the evening, because I was always home at six o'clock in the evening when my partner came home from work.
1: Yeah. Okay, so you had your first meeting with um, with him scheduled, and you accidentally slept through that. And you scheduled the second meeting. He picks you up, and you're in his you 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 went to his vehicle, and you ask him. You know, you you start the conversation about the serial killer. He shuts that down. What happens after that?
2: um then we we talked about his landscaping business, which um he was very proud of, and uh the mall santa and there was some moments of awkward silence um but you know we're just meeting for the first time that's not unusual it, it was, it's five miles from my place to his place so um and it's in a place where you have to take some buses and and the subway so It made sense that he would offer to pick me up because otherwise I probably would have said I'm not going out there Um, because I'm lazy. Um, But um, when we got there, now, oh, he did bring up the fact that he had a roommate while it was in the car. He
1: he did not he did not bring up the fact that he had a roommate.
2: No, he did he did. Um, Oh, he did. Okay. I don't know uh, if he did that in case the roommate came home or something, or if he suspected it. I ended up uh, recently being able to have dinner with the roommate uh after trying to search for him since the trial ended and um I was able to say thank you.
1: So you're you're in his car and you're heading over nothing's coming up along the way uh that is standing out to you that this is uh this is starting to feel a little bit again a little bit off and you you arrive at his at his home.
2: Yes. And we um, again, he, he goes into the underground parking, which was significant in that he pulled his backed his van up to where the the uh, elevators are, which would give him the safe uh, the the least amount of exposure if he was taking me from the apartment to the van, where he would have transported me to the place where he uh, dismembered. Which all this stuff is. In is now creepy, and I'm, when I retell it, I, I just think, "Oh my god, I was lucky; <laughs> I was very lucky." So anyway, then we go upstairs. He lived on the nineteenth floor, and uh, it was a very large apartment. But he kept me only in a, like very little part of it. I never crossed into the main, and I don't know if that again was free, was prethought. Uh, like, let's keep his DNA in a very limited area and uh i had brought ghb and it's at this time because i had been running late normally i would have uh, set it up myself but because i had been running late a little bit but texting him i felt a little guilty because he seemed to be a very busy man and um so i gave him my ghb with instructions to put one of the the measurements in and not to, because I would go to sleep. And then just as I handed it off to him, I don't know what possessed me to say this, but I said, if you were the serial killer, this is the drug you'd want to use. And then I went off into the bathroom and he was able to mix the drink. And I had told him to mix it with, with something like strong. That's going to mask the taste because it doesn't taste very good. And um, he complied.
3: Even serial killer recipe
2: i know it's like nothing but giving giving instructions for your own demise did he chuckle
1: when you said that was he what was his reaction when you said that
2: i don't know because i was a little self-conscious because um he wasn't doing that but i was and so you kind of wonder what they're thinking like oh is this guy like a g junkie <laughs> like that um uh, but i just did it because it um i i have parkinson's and um I tend to sh- I shake all the time, but when if I'm the least, least bit nervous, it can get quite sort of large. My shaking and uh, the the G always calmed it down. So I guess I did it more to sort of be in a calmer, less anxious spot. I'm a very anxious person to begin with, but um yeah, that day I was just to sort of minimize my awkwardness.
1: Yeah, had you uh, done this before? Uh, met up with people who you, you'd been messaging? Was this a like a common uh practice
2: yeah but the, the the thing that i did different this day was i would never um leave my if if there were drugs involved i would never leave them out of sight of um myself because because that's the drug that they would use in a club and put the drop in someone's drink like so they could yeah roofie them and i know that but it was just uh, i it was the Catholic guilt of being late and putting someone out. I just felt like I had to make up t- time for him. So I thought by him doing that, I mean, uh, pre- prepping in the bathroom, uh, kill two birds with one stone. Pardon the pardon.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it all sounds relatively normal, you know, leading up to this. Uh, so he, he, uh, he mixed it with the drink and you came out of the, out of the bathroom. And, and then what happens?
2: Oh, uh, okay. Th- th- at this point, he takes me into his bedroom and um, the, it closes the door, and that's the last time up until when I left that I was outside the, the bedroom. So again, very methodical in terms of not spreading my DNA around because you you leave a you leave a little bit of yourself everywhere. And then we started to play a little bit, and but I'm also the G is starting to do its its uh, job. And there's certain signs, if you've taken too much, that sort of start to happen. Uh, you start sweating profusely. I personally will see a, a, like a little bit of colored lights. Uh, that usually indicates that I will probably pass out at some point. Um, I think I had about maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes of of consciousness, and then I was out. Now, I've been able to piece together from the timestamps of uh, the video surveillance cameras how long I was there. And then from that, I was able to work out how long I was unconscious, approximately. And it it works out to approximately 20 minutes that I was unconscious. That's when he uh, took more pictures. He had been sneaking taking pictures of me at different times um, since I arrived there, but uh, I wasn't aware. And then I certainly wasn't aware of the picture, the infamous picture, um, which was the one that indicates me, okay, he was going to kill me because he staged my body. Because he what? He staged my body. He he staged all his victims, usually post-mortem, but he staged my body um, in a way where, now, you've got to remember, these items, I never saw them so when I went unconscious, he brought them out. He put a hood over my head, a duct tape over my eyes. he handcuffed me to the bed. I never agreed to any of that to happen while I was out and during that time, he took uh the the pipe that was the murder was involved in most of the murders, if not all of them, I can't remember but he um had it gripped in his hand, and in the picture, my head's tilted to one side, and he's pushed it shoved it up against my neck, and he's taken a photograph um that's the one that was like the uh the moment where it was like, oh okay that was that's bad <laughs> that's very bad. When did you see those pictures? I've never seen them um the the police again, they were very, very cognizant of not causing me more trauma than I had to go through. So um, I was described that one that day. I don't think I was supposed to be given that information, but the detective sensed my um, confusion and my my upset that I, I couldn't understand why they they would call me a victim. So that was the first time she described it a little bit. I didn't know about a couple of the items like the hood and duct tape. After he pled guilty, um, we left for Europe to disappear for a month. And then I came back and I had a meeting with um, Detective Dickinson, uh, the one who uh, basically cracked the case, and um, Tia from uh, the Attorney General's Office uh, Victim Services. So, the, um, And then my partner sat in on the meeting. So the four of us met. And that was probably therapeutically the first big breakthrough for me. because. Uh, I got to to get information that I didn't have before. Like I I couldn't remember the exact date that I was there. I couldn't remember um, how I got home that day. Um, I couldn't, uh, I wanted to know, some people just don't want to know. They want to stick their head in the sand like it never happened. In order for me to get over this, I needed every little bit of detail I could get that was possible. I still have just a little bit of the, Um, the 20 minutes when I was out. But his roommate must have come home at the exact halfway point of those 20 minutes because he had time then to take the hood off, take the duct tape, put all that stuff away, and I never knew it was even there. So um, that's why when the police described the handcuffs, I was like, uh, no, that didn't happen. And so... I didn't even think I had anything to add to um, when I was going to the police uh, station. And it was them who, who uh, made me realize that uh, I was out I, of, there were actually four close people who um, had stepped forward that were close calls, but mine was by far the, I, I went the closest.
1: And his roommate came in about halfway through, uh, Based on your estimate, about halfway through, you being unconscious, and you have described it in the past that he he had you in a uh, in a kill position, and that is the position where he's ready to uh, enact the murder uh, with with his weapon of choice. And his
2: roommate steps in. His roommate didn't come into the room we were in. He didn't walk into his bedroom. But what what made it, I guess, uh, noticeable was his roommate came into the apartment so you can hear I didn't hear this because I was unconscious but you hear a key go in the door and so MacArthur would have heard these things and realized oh I can't kill him now I've got to like clean this up and uh, make it look like nothing happened and that's exactly what he did so he put everything away and the thing is is if you pass out for a period of time, unless there's someone there going, oh, you, you dude, you just passed out. You were out for about 20 minutes. And I didn't even know I passed out. I just thought it was like a time blip. And, like I wasn't paying, watching the clock or anything. And it was just like, uh, okay. So um, the fact that he came in at the exact moment um, where it could have gone the other way. Like I, I figured I was going to get my throat crushed um, that day. I'm pretty like I know. I like I've I've dealt with this like and I've told people who, who do doubt it, like, okay, are you willing to put I'm not gonna do it, so yourself in that exact same position and not have the roommate. Are you that sure of your theory? <laughs> and you'll take the roommate equation out and then uh see what happens. No, no way. <laughs> he was gonna kill me. I'll I'll tell you about the roommate uh, later. I did uh, find new information out just uh, about two weeks ago that it wasn't four hours early. It was actually the roommate had no intention of coming home till the Sunday. So I would have been there till the Sunday. Well, I would have been there for part of the weekend and then taken up to the other address and um, uh, laid to rest, so to speak.
0: Wow. So you had kind of passed out and he had taken some pictures of you and sort of posed you with um, perhaps the weapon he, he would have killed you with. And uh, then the roommate came home and sort of interrupted a little bit and prevented him um, from going forward with that plan. So is that is that a ritual that he went through then? He took pictures and, and posed uh, his victims?
2: Yeah, like um, it's in the uh, greeting of uh, facts that uh, what he what he did to each victim is he would shave their um, facial hair and their their head hair, and he kept he kept that hair in ziploc bags. That was part of the evidence. He hadn't got that far because uh, I still had my beard in my head, <laughs> um, so that was all post mortem. He used a fur coat as one of his main props in his murderers. It was used in most of them. I didn't, uh, I had no, not seen it the day I was there, but it was all that staging was after death. And he, sometimes he put things in their mouths. Uh, He put uh, like one, at one point he had one of them in a fur hat. And I don't know the significance of all this. It was almost like he would um, do them up like a pimp, like kind of pimped out. I don't, uh, that's the look that I guess he was going for. And then he would um, sexually satisfy himself. Um, Well, well, I don't know all he did to them, but uh, it's enough to uh, maybe uh, start to cry in the courtroom. I'll tell you that. Especially when I was sitting that first day uh, with all the families of the people who died and I'm sitting there without a mark on me Classifying myself as a victim, I—that was very um, hard pill to swallow.
1: There must have been a tremendous amount, and there—I don't know if there still is—but of survivor's guilt.
2: Yeah, like um, that was um, at first. Um, most of my guilt centered around Andrew because of the May um, missed date. There was a part. This is, and this is all the 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 br- human brain playing tricks, and it was just like. And the what if game, oh, what if I, ha- I had gone that day, then I would have been killed. And then perhaps his his appetite for for doing this would have been satiated long enough that Andrew might not have been the next. It would have changed the, the course of events. But that is a very dangerous game when you start to play that yeah. in your head because it took so many minute little things to Line up that I had that window of escape, that it was just sheer luck or a power greater than me looking over.
1: He had chosen these dates because his roommate was supposed to be away for the weekend.
2: Yeah, and that was, um, that was up until I, I just a couple weeks ago, I always wondered okay, he couldn't have done. The whole, the whole thing, what he did to the others, in four hours. So I was a little uh, thinking that brought in a, a little seed of doubt for me. But to have uh, now know that I was going to be uh, basically seventy two hours under his power, then uh, that makes more sense to me. So uh, it's not that I'm trying to prove anything because I, I know what happened and I know he was going to kill me. But there are some people out there. Who, there's critics in every um, walk of life. And and my critics are very vocal on when my interviews get posted. Oh man, that's ridiculous.
1: I mean, I'm right. You got to be a critic on this. Like what's the, what's the, what's the point in being a critic on this? Like,
2: um, Oh, I, I got everything. Like, um, my partner had to actually, um, stop me from reading the comments because some of them were quite vicious. Like, uh, um, I was cheating on my husband, so I should, uh, like, I, I just, they have no sympathy for what happened. Um, one said something about he should have ripped out my nose ring while he had me tied up, um, that I was stupid because I, I went there and I let him tie me up, which is not the truth. But that's how it, um, the conclusion they drew, because the recon um, profile is, is more of a, uh, sm leather kind of kinky site so because of his pro- profile profile what it said um they just assumed i agreed to everything in his profile which is not the, the case either uh certainly not on a first meeting
1: oh I yeah gotcha well even if you did he's 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 still a, a psychotic he's still a serial killer You know, like yeah,
2: it's like they don't realize they're saying these things. But the bottom line is, so I deserve to be chopped, chopped up, and buried in a planter? No, Jesus! And there was there were the homophobes who just said that MacArthur uh, deserved a Medal of Honor uh, for killing. For for Christ's sake! And I was just like, okay, I know what I'm dealing with there. So um, I only responded to one. the whole time. And because I was told not to go on. So I almost obeyed that fully, but, um, you know, you're curious, it's like a, an accident. You want to see what's going on. So, um, I went on and my partner was going through every negative comment and he was defending me. And, uh, there was one lady, he got into a back and forth about And she had said something like, uh, I, I basically needed to get a new partner and this was someone who was my rock and seeing me through this very difficult time. And so she's the one I, re- I chose to respond to. Um, and I just basically told her t- that if I was sitting in front of her and she saw I was a kind person, would she still come across as this, uh, I think I said, witch cause you can't use the B word on, on that site. And, uh, and then I just told her that she should get a new partner and melt that chunk of ice that used to be her heart to get some humanity. <laughs> and then the next comment came from a Christian woman, which was uh, very sweet. And she said, people, he's reading these. Could you please have some uh, some humanity and, and uh, let this man heal? And I thought, you go, Christian, maybe. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: I don't know what it is about people. Tim and I, when we started doing these podcasts, like you can you can have the best intentions for anything, and we've never been a victim like that at all. And uh, and it's just mind blowing to read the comments, and you do get like in the beginning, you you don't understand like this is not something you should uh, take part in because you're you're essentially you know giving them what they want. You're fanning the the fire, and 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 you're you're falling to the bait, but. When they start like personally attacking, you know they're they're attacking your partner, and you know you just you, you just feel like you need to respond to it. Again, we've never been a victim like you've been, and and I, I I'm, my hats off to uh to you for <laughs> having that much restraint.
2: Um, yeah, it was it was tough because I'm a scrapper, and um, and uh but I wasn't prepared for that uh, at all. Like I I didn't think there was that much hate, and and. Um they said, well, I put myself forward by doing the interview, so I was public. Um I was they could criticize me all I wanted because I put myself forward. I was forced out out to do that interview because my name was leaked to the press. I know this because my ex uh who lives in San Francisco was called by one of the local TV stations. Looking for me, I hadn't spoken to him in almost ten years, and he uh, suddenly um, calls me and says, "Um, "You know, City TV is looking for you." And um, I knew what it was about. I didn't have time to explain to him, but I said, "I'll call you back the next day and explain it." But I have to move on this, and that's when I I brought um, Sean Pru into the the mix, and he uh, I basically bartered the, the fact that he could have first crack at the story because he was a journalist, but he also owned a media company and he knew how to. Work it if he would handle the press from that moment to the end of trial. That was the deal I made because um I was dealing with too much. I was at this point, I was just trying to get through every day and I couldn't focus any energy on what the press was doing. Was something I had to do. And then, then that's when I was advised you need to go get in front of the story if you're going to have any control over your narrative because otherwise they'll form a story by going around and interviewing people about you and it would uh be factual because a lot of assumptions are made
1: so smart i'm curious about your feelings when he pled guilty to these eight murders
2: well um that was probably the best day and the worst day because um i couldn't be happy because there's still the eight dead men it didn't make sense to me because now i was put in a position where i didn't know what I was supposed to do because I had been preparing to be key witness. I'd structured my whole year in terms of how I would be here in town for the last like six to nine months. Um, so I, I did some traveling at the beginning of the year and um, cause I was, I was trying to be out of Toronto, uh, Toronto as much as possible because of the, um, it was just, the story was a Toronto story and um, I, I wasn't going out of the house anyway i was pretty much doing what we're told to do now and i was already doing it for a couple years before i was a trendsetter (laughs) gotcha (laughs) so by by isolating myself there was no record that i'd gone through what i went through because my charges were not brought forward the reason i was told at, at the beginning was because they needed me as key witness and uh, that would have put me in the role of a plaintiff, and they didn't want that. So, and I, I was fine with that. Like, if I could help put this guy away, I was. That was my what I felt was my duty here. When he pled guilty, so okay, that that case is closed. What about attempted murder? Like, do you not think the fact that we have a photograph of the pipe against my neck with the DNA of the two previous victims still on it, and my DNA would be there as well like that would be a dead giveaway that was a, a, at least an attempted murder if not to mention the handcuffs and lawful confinement like i didn't see much for me it was an open and shut case but uh the police i think maybe because the case is so big and the investigation's still ongoing they're 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 trying to see if they can find the others out there and uh so it's still an open case so um at first i was very upset like uh, it was just i felt lost i felt like i didn't exist and i didn't know what to do because my, you gotta remember this thing took up my energy and my mind 24 7 for over a year like i was having night terrors uh almost every night and uh it, it got to be a bit much, and then to suddenly be there, okay, well, he's he's behind bars now, and um, we don't need your services anymore, so thank you. Um, and it was just like no record of my crime. And I was just like, I felt like I didn't exist. No, that was, a, that was probably a very, very low moment for me. I think I had a breakdown that night.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Kind of feel like uh, no one's listening to you, or your experience doesn't matter, and how close you came to death doesn't really matter legally.
2: Yeah, there was, it was just you now there. It, there were some uh, documents released after about four people who had close calls, and and uh, like I mentioned in there, but that's part of the investigation. Uh, so I was linked to the investigation, but at the time it was just like. Uh, I discussed doing whether or not to do a victim's impact statement and I could tell they didn't want me to make one because they were saying, well, it's really just for families. And, uh, until uh, Catherine McDonald spoke up on her newscast, and uh, she ended it by saying, and he's not even allowed to do a victim's impact statement, yet he was clearly impacted, which then led to the next morning an email saying, would you like to do a victim's impact statement? The power of the press. (laughs) And then I went to Europe, and um, the story's not that big over there. I relaxed, and by the time I came back, I, I was really compelled to meet with the police and find out all these answers and when I got back I was more casual about it I was uh, I was feeling okay you know what it had sunk in that regardless of of record or no record I'm lucky to be alive let's counter (laughs) counter blessings there and uh before I was just so caught up in it, it I needed that month to sort of like for that reality to hit me that um I once said to someone uh you know, the chances of like hooking up with a serial killer are, you have a better chance of winning the lottery. And then you go, he turned to me and he said, John, you did win the lottery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I got away.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah. When you went to court and during the trial, you saw him, right? Well, what were your thoughts when you saw him at, at trial?
2: Um, well, I, I made sure I was in the front row that first day. Like I was just like, so determined so I got there uh, when the doors just first opened and I stood in line for a long time because they had uh, extra security that day so you had to go through a couple checkpoints Um, and then I was I went in and I sat in the front row he did not he was led to where the um, into this little chamber thing in the middle of the courtroom where they stand or sit and listen to what's being said. And then that's where he stood up and said, guilty, guilty, guilty. And he didn't turn his head. He just stared straight ahead. No remorse on his face. just He looked like a sad, broken man. Um, He didn't look like the man that I knew was Bruce MacArthur. For me, that was good that I saw him in that weakened uh, state, I called that day was facing my demons and and, and that was uh, able to see the weakness and the frailty and, uh, that
1: helped. And aside from the documentary that you're, you've, you've done, um, what have you done? Uh, have you done anything additional as far as, um, maybe talking to other victims? Uh, what have you done in your community? Is there, how is this, uh, changed you to um in a more positive light.
2: And uh, there's been a lot of positives that uh, have come out of this. Um the documentary and both my psychiatrist and my psychologist agree was the the best thing I did in terms of healing because what the documentary allowed Was it's my wonderful life moment? Like, but instead of being taken completely out of my life and being able to watch it as an observer, as if I hadn't existed, what I was given—the gift I was given—is I, because of the the intense circumstances, people felt compelled to approach me. Billy being one of them, um, to tell me, you know, you made such an impact on my life. I went in a positive direction, and Billy wasn't the only one, and like you. I would have never known. I hadn't seen Billy in 21 years when he uh, appeared uh, like, me on Facebook. And it was just like, he would have never felt compelled to come and tell me what a difference I made. I had no idea. And for me, it was just at the time when I took him off the street, it was the right thing to do. It wasn't uh, a question of what he could do for me 21 years later. Because, um, it was just the right thing, it was having some humanity, and I think a lot of that is lacking. It's also given me a bit of a platform to sort of point out some to the people who are speaking the loudest, there's a lot of cr- police criticism. Now, I did uh, give uh, affidavit at the public inquiry into police conduct, uh, and how they handle missing uh, persons' cases of marginalized communities. And I was able to give my truth, which was they handled me so well. They could have gone another way, because I did do some very bonehead moves that day. Um, But I accepted responsibility for it. I admitted it on on national TV. Yeah, I made mistakes. But again, doesn't mean I deserve to be chopped up for them. Um, yeah,
0: definitely not.
2: Yeah, and then, um, so there's uh, some large con- uh, contingents of the um, p- population who are criticizing the police of their conduct in this investigation. And for that, I have to say, I was there behind the scenes. And they cared. They're saying they didn't care because they were gay men or there were p- people of color. No, they cared. They just didn't have the evidence from any of them to go. It, was, it wasn't until Andrew wrote the word Bruce in his in his appointment book for the day he went missing. So they had the name Bruce. They got the video footage of, of Andrew, uh, which I saw in court, of Andrew's last, uh, like getting into MacArthur's van. They couldn't make out the license plate and they couldn't make out the driver, but they were able to get the make and model they found out that it was um, a special edition, and there was like thousands of them registered in, in Toronto. But then they ran it with the name Bruce, and they came back with five. Wow! And that was the thing that they ran those names. There was one with uh, some history with the police, and that's their man. That's like the fact that they were did it. And there were other parts of the investigation where at one time it was hooked to a, a possible cannibalism ring, which w- they followed. But then they found it was unfounded, and then there was the two victims who weren't weren't even reported. And like, how can you say, "Oh, they're not working, um, doing their job" because they didn't investigate these when they didn't even know they were missing? Like, it wasn't until there was the one they put the the photo on TV, which again they were criticized for that, but they couldn't identify him. And it was it was uh, by putting it public that move, although unprecedented, um, was what got, um, Mr. Catarachna, uh, identified. Yeah. Wow.
1: That is incredible.
0: Yeah. What a story, Sean. Well, uh, so, so glad you're, uh, you're still with us. What an experience and so glad Billy, uh, contacted you about doing this documentary. It seems like a very positive thing that you're, uh, you're doing, um, you know, with your life now, um, after this harrowing experience, when is the documentary coming out?
2: well um Covid our little friend um has, has shut down everything, including the, the editing room is locked up so we're we're behind schedule right now, but uh, I imagine everything's gonna be behind schedule, and there's no theaters to play it in um so it's just like until this this um latest pandemic is is uh comes to uh some sort of end we're in limbo too with everyone else in the world so. Um, I just hope that it, uh, this causes me stress and anxiety, which pulls up old feelings, but it's the unknown. The unknown is what is always my enemy, and um, it's the unknown of when this is going to end. and uh, It's just causing me stress. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I, everyone, I, and when I start to like, speak about it, I think, you know what, it is what it is just do the best you can to get through it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. Just control what you can. And, uh, and this is out of all of our controls right now, but, um, thank you so much for joining us here and, uh, sharing your story and, uh, and Billy, thank you so much for reaching out and, um, you know, wanting to share his story. Really appreciate it.
2: No, seriously. My pleasure. Um, and uh, thank you guys. It was a pleasure to meet you, even though it was over the phone, but (laughs) it is the time to live in. and uh thank you
1: i just have one one more question for sean um dude how do you get your beard like that i can't i can't (laughs) seem
2: to do this well right now it's called you can't go to a barber to have it trimmed and i can't trim my own um because parkinson's it just makes for a messy beard um but uh yeah this is just it's it's out of control right now i i told you i woke up late today so i'm basically sitting here with it looks like roadkill stuck to my face (laughs) (music)